If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to read from the 16th Psalm, a prophecy that was fulfilled on this day, and we read it in verses 9 and 10. Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Here, hell would refer to the grave. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one, that would be the Messiah, to see corruption. Now, go to the book that precedes the book of Psalms, the book of Job, and there we'll go to chapter 19. Job, as you know, suffered many, many things as the Lord gave permission to Satan to do, I'll say everything, short of taking his life. It's interesting when you read that. Satan can do nothing to us but by God's permission. And when God said to Satan, you can't take his life, that's because God controls life and death, not Satan. Job chapter 19, in the midst of all of his sufferings, of all of his troubles, at verse 23, Job utters, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. And remember the sufferings of Job if you've read it. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. It's a prophecy. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet... In my flesh shall I see God. Read that there. We're not going to be on that verse very long, just reading it. Job understands he's going to die, but he says, my Redeemer lives, and I will see him in my flesh, even after my flesh is totally corrupted. Worms eat my body. Verse 27 says, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me, which simply means even though I'm dead. He that lives and believes on me shall never die, is what Jesus said. And I realize, and some of you here realize, that for some, this holiday of Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, if you prefer, it's in the King James Bible, the word Easter. Well, I mean, they recognize it as a holy day. I received some exhortation on that last night from someone. I can't say how much people actually know about this day, but I want you to know what we're talking about here. And what is written? Obviously, God answered Job's prayer here. Well, that my words were now written and they were printed in the book, and they are. It's called the Bible. And even though over the last quite a few decades, the Bible has been just attacked, and it hasn't just been attacked from the outside, from people who are not believers in Christ. It's been attacked from the inside, in the church. But the Bible has more manuscript evidence than any other book in antiquity, meaning there's more manuscript pieces, pages, and so on. Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 40s and just recently again in some more caves in Qumran. There's more manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other book in the entire world. And I say that to establish the fact that the Bible is the word of God and the veracity of this book should be held by you without question. The integrity of the Bible, that it's true. Everything contained in the Bible is the truth. Now, 
Some years ago, there was the head of Harvard Law School, when it was pretty much just beginning, a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf. He took over for another lawyer by the name of Joseph Story, who wrote one of the earliest histories of America, and that's only the early 1800s when he wrote it, so it's an interesting read. I have it in my library. Simon Greenleaf wrote a classic. To this day, is still considered a classic, which is entitled A Treatise on the Laws of Evidence. He's a lawyer, but a very well-known one, and the head of the Harvard Law School in 1843 he did much to build that library in Harvard and other things too. He was a very imposing individual, a lawyer. But he happened to also be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he wrote these words that I want you to listen to and take note of what he said. He said this, A person who rejects Christ may choose to say that I do not accept it, whether it's the crucifixion or the miracles or the virgin birth, or, of course, the resurrection, the second coming. He says, a person who rejects Christ may choose to say that I do not accept it. He may not choose to say there is not enough evidence. Of the divine character of the Bible, the whole book, I think no man who deals honestly with his own mind and heart can entertain a reasonable doubt. For myself, I must say, remember, this is the head of Harvard Law School. For myself, I must say that having for many years made the evidences of Christianity the subject of close study, the result has been a firm and increasing conviction of the authenticity and plenary, which means every word of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and plenary inspiration of the Bible. It is indeed the word of God. I think it would be very encouraging if the head of Harvard Law School would come out and make that statement today, whoever he or she is. But Simon Greenleaf, you could look him up. He was a very imposing lawyer. I just told you that his treatise on the laws of evidence is still considered a classic on law and evidence. And he was a believer. And you can find many of those people throughout history that were very bright, like Isaac Newton and others, who were firm believers in Jesus Christ. And they didn't do so just because it was something that they were taught when they were children that we are often accused of just following dad's religion, mom's religion. These men, and like myself, by the way, did it by examining the evidence. And you can look and you can read on many who were professing atheists. C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, another man by the name of Robert Morrison. He was a lawyer as well, who was also an atheist and wrote specifically on the resurrection some of these men, Josh McDowell and Robert Morrison in particular, set out to disprove the Bible, to say, look, this is, I know this book is false, and I'm going to prove it. And as they studied more and more and more, because they were honest in both their head and their heart, they got convinced by the laws of evidence that everything written in this book is true. <laughs> so with that being said, we have today in Jesus what we read as and we also claim as a Savior. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Huh. What does it profit? And when we truly are born of the Spirit of God, we are called out of the world, not off the planet. We're called out of the world in its ways of thinking, its priorities, which again, I say this to you, has unfortunately come into the church 
where your preachers will tell you that it's all about how much money you can get, God wants you to have, and all that. It's antithetical, it's unbiblical, it's abiblical, it's against what the Bible teaches. Not that you don't need money, and not that if you get blessed in your business, there's nothing wrong with that. But to have covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. It takes the place of Jesus. But anyway, no matter what you have, and I've done plenty of funerals, no matter what you have, you don't take it with you. The only thing you take with you is yourself, your soul. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So having stated, not necessarily established, again, we would need time to do this series of studies on the inspiration of Scripture and its validity and its correctness and all of that. I simply make one statement from Simon Greenleaf that he and others have established in their minds, and I hope it's established in yours, that you can trust what you read that is telling the truth. And I say one more thing here with that in mind. For me, and I've shared this before, shared frequently, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see. As I look at the world and I read the book and I look at the world and I read the book, I say, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. How much longer can it possibly be? I don't know, but it seems as though it's getting very close. Now, when it comes to the truth, we meet this Jesus who, for lack of a better term, we will just simply call him an itinerant rabbi, who says things that are so profound that the crowds would react, as some would say, at least, no man ever spoke like this. Think of the comparison. You have Socrates, you have Plato, you have Aristotle, you have all these great figures that lived before Jesus on the earth, and they come out and say, no one ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke like this. No one ever said these things. That's just his speech. Not including his miracles, the healing of the blind and the healing of all the sick and the lepers and so on, but also of his resurrecting the dead. Now, men cannot do that. There is no record of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or any of the leaders of world religions ever doing these things. Someone was asked, a religious leader, a Brahmin, was asked one time, can you say, destroy me, and in three days I'll raise myself back up again? And taking it as a literal statement, he says, yes, I can say that. Then the question was asked, but can you prove it? And this is what Jesus would say would be the absolute imprimatur, the absolute stamp of authenticity, that he is who he said he was, the savior of the world. He says, destroy, and we'll read it in just a second, destroy this temple, kill me, and in three days I'll raise myself back up again. That's the paraphrase. Let's look at some of these scriptures. As Jesus speaks of his own death and resurrection, John chapter 10, at verse 17 Jesus, of course, is speaking. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life. Now, we celebrated this Friday evening. That I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Can someone say, I'll prove to you who I am. Kill me. And in three days... I'll raise myself up again. And for those of you who were not here Friday night and do not know much about Roman crucifixion, the sermon that I preached Friday night is still on my Facebook page. It'll be there for 30 days and you get a small inkling, tiny inkling of what crucifixion in Rome and other countries' cultures as well prior to Rome actually was. 
And Jesus says, I have the power to lay my life down in the fashion described both in the Bible and through historical records, which I was sharing with you Friday. I want to just say something. This is kind of an aside. When we find Jesus in Gethsemane, it is often stated even Jesus had his moments of weakness. He was praying to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That is not my view. Because of this verse here, he says, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it again. And in another place, Jesus says, this is the reason I was born. We were all born to live. He's the only one that ever came specifically to die. So I am of the opinion that he was not referring to the crucifixion at Gethsemane. He may have been referring to the fact that Satan wanted to kill him right then and there. He was bleeding blood from his agony in the garden there at Gethsemane. He was in great agony, as we know, and it is my belief, and I reserve it as a personal belief, that Satan wanted to kill him then, because if that was the case, then the scriptures couldn't have been fulfilled. Psalm 22, the crucifixion, and so on, and other prophetic scriptures. I don't believe that Jesus was necessarily afraid of the cross and asking the Father to let it pass from him. He couldn't have done that, because if he did that, we would still this moment be in our sins We'd have no hope whatsoever. Now, I know men read philosophers and they seem to satisfy some people. But I've read many philosophers and none of them have ever satisfied me. It's not that they don't say things that are not true or they say, well, that's a good saying. <laughs> I'm thinking of one right now, but I think I'll reserve it for some other time. There's some good sayings with the philosophers, but none of them said, I've come as the savior of the world. And you'll want to know that I'm God come in the flesh. Kill me, and in three days, I'll raise myself back up again. I have power to lay my life down. That's what he was speaking about right there. So research it. Watch the message I preached on Friday. And listen, I have the power to go to the cross, as we would translate it. I have the power to be beaten. I have the power to take the scourging that would rip the skin right off my back, dig deep into the body, lacerate not only the venous system, but the arterial system as well become so weak I couldn't carry the tabulum, the crossbeam to Calvary, had to have somebody carry for me. It's the reason I died so quickly because when they put the sponge to his mouth, he says, the Bible says rather, he gave up the ghost. He gave up the spirit. Now I can't do that. I can't on the spot and nor would I try it. I can't on the spot saying I just gave up my spirit and I'm dead. But if I could, I would do it in front of you just for the drama. Which is exactly what Jesus did, but not for the drama. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit because he had the power to lay down his life again. But that wasn't the end. He said, I have power to take it up again. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple. Now he's just cleansed the temple, as we know that. We talked about that this last week. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed, look at this here, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. The scripture and the word. Well, it's the same. But here in the way it's written for us, we see what I was sharing with you. Simon Greenleaf and many others, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It's interesting to note, and I'll show it to you in just a minute. It took the followers of Christ, and these are his closest followers, disciples, 
until after the resurrection to finally say, that's what he meant, which sometimes happens to us. We may forget the word of God until it's over and maybe God has delivered you from something and then you remember. He sent his word in Psalm 107. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. And you say to yourself, that's what that scripture means. That God will preserve his own right to the very end. And let's be clear about this once again. It's not that anyone in this room, starting with me, deserves it. None of us merited this. I mean, some of us have personalities that I observe in human nature. Some of us have personalities that are more likable than other people's personalities. But when we come before the cross, we come on equal footing. There's not one of us that has merited it. Not one of us deserves it. And yet God so loved the world. So I said to you, or say to you again, there is not a single sin that you've ever committed that God cannot or will not forgive. And that must be accepted, as I told you Friday, completely by faith, or you will never have joy. You will never have freedom if there's always a doubt about the efficacious nature of the cross. In any case, it's just an irony that it's not the disciples who remember that he said, initially remember that he said, destroy my body and I'll raise it back up again. But the Pharisees remembered it. We see this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, after he's crucified. And said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. But that's not what he said. But that's what they said. Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, and saying, thou, that he's on the cross and they're speaking to him. <clears throat> thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Could Jesus have done that? Yes. But then again, no. Because if he saved himself... He couldn't save you. And so when they said, if you be the son of God, save yourself. Now, Jesus didn't answer. But the reason is that he was dying to save us. So if he spared himself, and we would not have been spared. We would be paying the penalty for our own sins in an eternity without Christ, without God, without anything that's even remotely good in a place called hell. And keep this in mind, would you please? When it comes to the doctrine of hell, which it appears that preachers are almost afraid to preach it, we must let people know Amen. that this place exists and further that that cross of which Jesus died on makes no sense at all if there isn't that place called hell. And the word saved, when we say, are you born again? Are you saved? Makes no sense either. It just puts us on equal footing or Jesus on equal footing with every other philosopher. He just said some things. But what Jesus said could not possibly come from a rational mind. So we'd have to look at Jesus as the ultimate deceiver or someone who was truly lunatic, or he was actually the Lord. Mark chapter 14, verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And remember, I read the verse, that's not what he said. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. That's not what he said. This is, by the way, 2,000 years ago, and it sounds like our media from today. It's not what he said, but human nature has not changed. Mark 15, 29 and they that passed by railed at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. And again, went on to say, Come down off the cross. But here's something very, very interesting. After his resurrection, we know where the disciples, they're hiding in a room. And they're very discouraged and they're very depressed. And even when Jesus appears to them eventually and Thomas wasn't there, which, by the way, is often what happens when you miss a message 
from the word of God and you're not there and people are telling you, oh, yeah, I need that message, it's too late. Well, all right, it's recorded and you catch it. But it's never the same as being there. Anyway, Thomas wasn't there. And when he came in, and these are the people, well, like yourself, who follow Christ and they're saying, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe anything until I could put my hand in his wrists, his hands, his side, his feet, where he knew you know, Jesus was crucified, I will not believe. And then my favorite is when Jesus, he didn't use the door, he comes walking through the wall. I mean, when God wants to make a point, he certainly knows how to make a point. He comes walking through the wall, and he says, come here, Thomas. <laughs> Be not unbelieving, but believe. Put your hands in my side. Put your hands in my hands. Put your hands in my feet. Thomas drops down, and he says, my Lord and my God. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. But notice here in Matthew 27, verse 63, after they are proclaiming that he's arisen, they say again, sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, he's dead. After three days, I will rise again. This clues us into the fact that they knew from the beginning exactly what it meant. But in order to get him crucified and to have the people oppose him, well, not all opposed him, but some people opposed him, in order to do that, they had to say, he was talking about the building, 46 years, this massive Herod's temple. He's going to build it in three days. But then we see after he was dead, he says, we remember he said, after three days, I will rise again. I will rise again. So at very least, some of them actually knew what he meant from the very beginning. Interesting. In any case, Jesus spoke about his own death. His own resurrection was no ordinary death. I could speak about my death, but everybody knows that we're all going to die unless Christ comes back first. That's no accomplishment. I'm going to die. He spoke specifically of how he was going to die and that he had the power to take himself back up again after this brutal, brutal death. Then we read in John chapter 11, one of my favorite stories in the event of Jesus' life is raising Lazarus from the dead. So number one, Jesus talked about his own death and resurrection. Number two, he raised others from the dead. And again, no man ever did these things. John chapter 11, verse 4 when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Lazarus, your friend, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. He said, Well, it's not unto death. But the truth is, Lazarus was already dead. Well, he was dying anyway. He wasn't already dead, but he was, he was dying. And he would die. Verse 11 These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Well, that's a good thing. But I go that I may awake him out of sleep, which really anybody could do that. So what is he talking about? Verse 13. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Now, as a pastor, if something, God forbid, tragic happened to you, and I call you up, and I say to you, well, you know, this is for the glory of God, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Well, more than likely, you're not going to have me as your pastor much longer than that. This man doesn't even care. But Jesus has something in this seeming madness. I go to awake him out of sleep. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. Verse 15. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And so they go. Verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Sometimes it seems that way in our walk with the Lord, that if he had only shown up when we had asked, these bad things wouldn't happen to us. God is never late. Never. 
Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day, as we, by the way, shall also. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. And the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Then he asked the question, believest thou this? Do you believe this? This is one of my favorite things when I read that. When he simply says, I'm the resurrection. I just don't do some magical things or some people like to think of Jesus as a cosmic Jesus who elevated his consciousness to this level where he drew in the powers of the universe. (laughs) No, Jesus created the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's not drawing on the power of the universe. He's the one upholding it. We read that in Colossians. He's the one that's upholding it with the Word of his power. He was God come in the flesh. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. We're not going to read the rest because you know what happened. And they have the stone. And Martha, you know, she's similar to Peter in her personality. Always, you know, Lord, I said he's dead. He's been dead for four days. He's going to stink. I said, roll away the stone. Rolls away the stone. Now think of being there. He's shouting. It's in the graveyard, right? Or let's, let's call it a cemetery. Lazarus, come forth. If he had not said, Lazarus, come forth, if he had just said, come forth, everybody would have come out of the cemetery. But that would have been something. But when you see Lazarus coming forth, he's not just walking out saying, hey, what happened? He's wrapped. He's embalmed. He's coming out like this. And, you know, there's no doubt great fear that falls on him. He's been dead for four days. I am the resurrection. Lazarus, come forth. And I think if I just stretch the blanket just a little bit, The day may be that when we are raised from the dead, again, assuming that we die before the Lord returns for us, we may each hear our name personally. Not just the trumpet as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and not just a general sound. I mean, that's what it looks like, and perhaps that's the the ultimate truth. But I think there's a possibility that we'll each hear our names individually. In my case, it would be Raymond, come forth. And there shall we be with the Lord. Well, if we die before the Lord comes, then we're going to go before those that are alive on the earth, if we're in the grave, because that's what the scripture tells us. And we shall rise first, and then those that are alive and remain will be caught up together, all of us, and we'll meet the Lord in the air. (laughs) We'll meet the Lord in the air. Wow. I mean, God, he does things in a big way. Israel is stuck at the edge of the Red Sea there on the shore, and the army of the Egyptians are behind them. Moses don't know what to do, and the people are starting to complain again, and no one can blame them, really. And uh, God says, stand still. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And, of course, the Red Sea parts, and they walk over on dry land. God has a way of doing things in a big way. And on that day... But Martha was referring to on that day, on that last day, whenever that is, if we are gone and Christ has not returned, we will go first. Those that are alive will go up and we will all be there in the air to meet the Lord in the air. Every single believer, no matter where they were buried on the earth, even including the oceans, everyone will rise. This is God speaking. 
Again, I remind you, I did not write this book. I did not get this from Descartes. I didn't get this from a philosopher. I didn't get this from any of the world leaders of religion. This is coming from the word of God, Jesus Christ. That he would raise up his own on that day yet appointed. And this is what we have to look forward to. And we are living in difficult days. No one doubts that. I mean, no rational person doubts that. And what is our hope? I tell you that the more that I read, and I don't mean the Bible, but the more I read on the news, it can actually start to seep into your mind and either produce a fear or an anxiety or a depression. But then I'm always reminding myself, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Amen. And then we go through the scriptures. And then this book here, which I started out by quoting Simon Greenleaf, and there's many others that I could quote to show you that the evidence, and I said this once to a judge, still a judge. I said, you know, I believe I can prove that God wrote the Bible to you. I said, we can use preponderance of evidence, like in civil cases, or we can do it by beyond reasonable doubt. And then you can sit in the position and make the final analysis and judge God. So he just smiled. He said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. But I believe that I can, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a simple man, a common man, who knows his Savior and what's written in the Bible. Amen. And the evidence is certainly overwhelming. As Greenleaf said, a man or a woman, person can reject this, but they can't reject the evidence. Amen. And that's not really the subject of today, but we're going to hit it in just a second. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and we'll talk just a little bit about evidence. Is this really a fairy tale? That, by the way, is the name of the message. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it a fact? Did it really happen? Are all these things really true, or is this a fairy tale? That people like myself, who are emotionally weak and weak-minded and don't have much intelligence, we believe these things, you know. The really smart people, they say, there is no God. <laughs> not according to the Bible, they're not. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And these fools are the head of universities. They're the head of physics departments and experts in cosmology and others. <laughs> and they're simple people. Because in the book it says this. Religious leaders rejected Jesus, but the common people, and that's you and that's me, the common people heard him gladly. Yeah. Let me just quickly. The blind man, blind from birth, his parents, everybody knew he was blind, sitting there begging. Jesus heals him and he sees and then they examine him. The religious leaders examine him. And they say, tell us who this fellow is. And he says, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. The only thing I know is this. I used to be blind. And now I see. Yes. And you know, you don't have to understand everything about this Bible. It is a very deep book when you put all 31,102 verses together. But when you experience it, then you know that you know that you know that you know. By the power of the Holy Spirit. No man can shake that belief. I've said just a couple of times this week alone to a few friends for whatever reason that we were talking about. And by the way, I really hate when some friends bring up politics to me because they don't want an answer. They want to argue. And I'm not interested in trusting any flesh or any blood. I'm trusting in Jesus. But when you know that you know that you know that you know, this is something, again, that only God can do. Only God can do that for you today if you truly don't know. I can't do it for you. 
I'm going to persuade. I'm going to quote the scriptures. I'm going to give you evidence of the integrity of the Bible, but that's all that I can do. This is in the hands of God. God makes converts, not me. God makes Christians, not me. It's not the work of flesh and blood. And we read that in several places in Jesus' ministry. It's the work of God himself. All right, you're in Acts chapter 1. Luke is the author of the book of the Acts, and he's also obviously the author of the gospel according to Luke. The former treatise, he's referring to the gospel account, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, that's evidence, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So this phrase that we have here, many infallible proofs, he showed himself to the apostles by many infallible proofs, means evidence. It means something that is surely and plainly known. It means something that is beyond reasonable doubt. For our purposes, that's what it means. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. And you keep in mind, in front of juries, when it's a capital crime or some type of capital crime or something similar to it, it's not a civil suit, you have to present your case beyond reason. Listen to me. You have to present your evidence beyond reasonable doubt to a reasonable mind. If you're being tried somewhere out in the backwoods of some place where you're not one of the local boys, you're already found guilty. But a reasonable mind takes reasonable evidence and starts to think it through. And that's exactly what Greenleaf and others that I mentioned, and many others beyond that, have done. They were honest enough to say, wait a second, this don't add up. I could be wrong. Evidence. I go back to Greenlee for another quote. He said this, if a close examination of the evidences of Christianity may be expected of one class of men more than another, if anybody's going to examine the Bible, it would seem incumbent upon lawyers who make the law of evidence one of our peculiar studies. Our profession leads us to explore the mazes of falsehood, to detect its artifices, to pierce its thickest walls, to follow and expose its sophistries, to compare the statements of different witnesses with severity, to discover truth and separate it from error. He's saying lawyers, above all people, should be able to go into this Bible and make this a study and come out with evidence or not. Either the men of Galilee... Greenleaf wrote this, were men of superlative wisdom and extensive knowledge and experience and of deeper skill in the arts of deception than any and all others before them or after them. Or they have stated astonishing things which they saw and heard. And they did. And they did because he was risen. And that they knew. There may be some act of providence in the fact that the apostles were almost, we may say, after Jesus' resurrection, some of the last to believe. They were hiding. They were discouraged. I just mentioned they, they were depressed. They were dejected. Their hopes of the Messiah. John the Baptist, too. He's the one that said, behold the Lamb of God. But I'm of the opinion that he didn't quite understand what he was saying. The Holy Spirit speaking through him. Because when he's in prison, he's asking his cousin, Jesus, what are you going to do? You're the Messiah. The Father showed me that. But he was the one who said, behold the Lamb of God. And so Jesus encourages him best that he can. Evidence in courts of law is what a theoretical justice system does. 
You may know by experience, it doesn't always work out that way. People are prejudiced, and they're prejudiced all around the world, by the way. Ireland has Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, and Korea has Northern Korea and South Korea, and then you just go around the world, you find that it goes all over the world. Yeah, yeah, and if you look at the Bible, if you approach it with prejudice, which some have, but they were honest enough to look at the evidence and get caught up that these men, like Jesus, they had to be telling the truth. Why? Because they did not respond like we would think they would, being apostles. They weren't the first ones to have faith. Well, it was a woman. I give credit to the ladies, I really do. Because you know, men like banting roosters, they like to so strut. Hey, how big are your biceps? No, they're bigger than yours, I'll tell you that much. How much can you lift? I always tell people, how much, you know, if you can lift this, it's a guarantee I lift 30, 40 pounds more than you do. <laughs> it's not true. It just sounds good. Yeah, it sounds good. That's what men do. But women made up a different nature. She comes to the tomb and she sees Jesus Rabboni. She goes back to the men and basically they're just dismissing her. What are you, delusional? He's dead. But all of these people, and I'll show you this in just a second, all of these men who doubted, they were discouraged and dejected, every single one of them, with the exception of John, who historically died a natural death, even though he didn't have an easy time of it, as a prisoner on the island, the penal colony of Patmos, every single one of these men who originally did not believe in the resurrection, every single one of them died a martyr's death. And nobody gives their life willingly for what they know is a lie. I'm not giving my life for what I know is a lie, and I'm gonna say, well, you know, and try to cover for somebody. That ain't happening. But what they saw caused them, each one. Judas committed suicide. He knew what he had done. His fate was not good. And John, again, didn't have an easy time, but they were all persecuted, and 10 of them died martyrs' deaths because they weren't mistaken like five-year-old Brian, the little boy in the Sunday school like we have downstairs today. They were doing a play on the resurrection. He had a small part, this young little boy had a small part in the play where he was to walk on the stage after the resurrection and quote Luke 24, 6. He is not here, he is risen. And so they gave this part to young Brian and he rehearsed it, a short line. <laughs> He's not here, he is risen. We rehearsed it and rehearsed it, but like most of us, I mean, you have an important part or a small part, and you got to, and all of a sudden this crowd, I, I was always picked for leads and plays that we had. And they have the stage lights in front of you, you can't really see the people, but there's a lot of people out there, and you have to give a line. Well, I guess he had the same type of anxiety that you would have when all of a sudden it was his turn to come up onto the stage and announce Luke 24, 6. He is not here, he is risen, but when he got up there, he just froze, totally froze. So there's one of the workers in the Sunday school church, in the children's church, threw him the line. He's not here. He's risen. And Brian shouted out. He says, he's not here. He's in prison. <laughs> well, it happens. I've done it here from the pulpit. Make a faux pas. <laughs> Jesus is not in prison. Jesus is alive. And he said, lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the earth, or the end of the age, rather. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. <laughs> Some of you write to me when I give you my Saturday evening emails, you know, looking forward to Sunday, looking forward to being there, looking forward to the service. And for many of us, including myself, it's the highlight of the week, because Jesus is not in prison. He is risen. 
just like he said. Huh? At the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. Easter confusion, no. It is the fact that there was an empty tomb. It is the fact that a massive stone, many, many tons, was moved. Who moved it? It wasn't a little woman, and it wasn't the apostles. They were hiding. Who moved the stone? How did the tomb get empty? How did Jesus get out of the grave clothes that he was wrapped in? And when Peter finally made it down there with John and rushed in, they were the way you should make your bed in the morning. It just everything should be neat and tucked away. I mean, yeah, Jesus took the time to take the grave clothes off and wrap them. I think that wasn't done on mistake. Just ripped the headpiece over there and the rest just laying right there, but he's gone. And the stone was moved. And the witnesses, who are the apostles, are shocked, like the church. Shocked at the very things they've been reading and hearing. And now that's when they remembered what we read earlier. They remembered, we remembered he said that he would build it again. We have all of these things. But I think that one of the greatest pieces of evidence, and we have many, but one of the greatest pieces of evidence was how their lives were changed. Peter, look at Peter, who said, I'll die for you in a moment of passion, romance. Jesus said, will you die for me? He says, I tell you, tonight before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times that you don't even know me. And he was vehement. I will die for you. I don't care what the rest of them. I'm not like the rest of them. I'm really committed. I'll die for you. He says, you're going to be the one that will say three times they don't even know you. And then we see Peter warming his hands by the fire. And again, who is it but a little girl? Peter's a fisherman, so he's no wimp. Hey, she says, you know him. You have the same dialect. You have a Galilean dialect. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And there's Jesus. You can see him in the praetorium being led up for his trial, mockery of a trial. And Peter is denying. I don't know him. And we, wait, did we saw you with him in the garden. You did not. It wasn't me. And then three times, then the cock crew, and we see, especially in pictures depicted by artists, Jesus just looking at him. And it says, Peter wept. Peter wept. All the disciples are hiding in a room, mutually discouraged, depressed, and dejected, as I've mentioned. But then when Jesus comes in, and then for 40 days, he's sharing with them other teachings not included in our Bible. Then, as I always like to think of this as well, as he's talking, he just goes up. Now, if I could finish my sermon that way today, I would. <laughs> to prove that I'm actually a pastor. Just go right up to the roof. But I can't. <laughs> but Jesus did. Then the angels say, what are you looking at? He said, this same Jesus that you saw go up shall come in this, I'm paraphrasing, will come in the same way. Revelation chapter 1, behold, he comes with clouds. And he's coming. And we see the signs that he's coming. We have more evidence for what we believe, teach, preach, share, and so on than any other religion in the whole world. Jesus. But in A.D. 66, this same Peter, who three times said I didn't know him, or in the vicinity of A.D. 66, under Nero's reign, the apostle Peter was crucified. Now, we know by tradition he was crucified upside down, but I told you Friday night that was sometimes done anyway. But we know that he requested to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like his master died. And that was a horrible death. In the same season, the apostle Paul was beheaded. And he once opposed the Christian doctrine, put people in jail. Andrew, he made his way. They all went out into all the world as missionaries. Andrew made his way up into the land of the man-eaters, which today we know is the Soviet Union, came back down through Turkey. He was crucified 
when he finally got to Greece at some point in time. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, he was beheaded. John, we know, was exiled. We read his book, the book of the Revelation. Judas, not Iscariot, we know he committed suicide. Judas, Zelates, was stoned to death. Matthew was speared to death, where I'm open right now. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Matthias was stoned to death. They all died martyrs' death. Would you die for something that you know is a lie? Would you get together with, and say, look, we're going to lie all the way to, and we're going to go all over the world. We're going to leave our family. We're going to leave our friends. We're going to leave the places where we grew up, our memories and childhood memories, synagogues, everything. And we're going to go all over the world and spell a lie. And every single one of them, we're going to die. And every single one did. They didn't die for a fairy tale. They died for what they saw and what they now have written for you and for me. There is nothing, nothing more important in this world than that event coupled with the atonement, the death on the cross of Jesus Christ in any person's life. He is greater than anything, anyone that has ever lived. And if I go away, he said, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Look at, if you said to me today, hey, pastor, you know, I have this little place in Tahiti. I own an island like Marlon Brando did. And if you and your wife want to go there for a couple months, I probably would say to my wife, you pray, I'll pack. And you know where you're going if you've seen, you know, the beauty of these islands. Now, Jesus is saying that you may be where I am. (laughs) So imagination takes over now and say, how beautiful, exotic, free from sins, free from destruction. You know what? This is, I don't know this for certain, but I don't believe there's even a news agency in heaven. And tonight, or if it is, it's going to talk about all the glory of God. So we'll watch it anyway. And all of you will be singing. You'll be blessed with a voice to sing. That I say by faith. And it goes beyond description. We just don't have the time today to go through all the evidence. We'll be here for hours. I'll be sharing with you from law books and all types of people who put the Bible to the test that it itself has the integrity of going with the evidence that is telling the truth and that the witnesses well, let's just stick with the apostles. What they saw changed them so much they were willing to die for it. And the apostle Paul, there was a little boy, I'll finish with this. And this is kind of a curious thing in life is that beekeepers, I say sometimes, but I have been told by beekeepers that it's not unusual for someone in their family to have a deathly allergy to a bee sting, which is kind of interesting. In any case, there was a boy who had this type of deathly allergy to bee stings. One spring day, his dad and himself were going out on a drive, beautiful day, and all of a sudden, a bumblebee came in the window. The boy had already had allergic reactions, so he knew what could happen, and he became frantic, frantic. So the father reached out, grabbed the bee, and just tossed him. Unfortunately, the bee made his way back around, back into the car, and the boy became frantic again. This time, the father did not grab for the bee. He just stuck out his hand where the stinger was. And he says, no need to worry, son. I've taken this sting for you. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56. But we know that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, not only to forgive us, which is certainly good and great, but now to receive us unto himself on that day, whenever that day is. The dead in Christ shall rise. And I'll say this to you one last time. I'm not saying this is scriptural. It's just my way of thinking. If I'm in the grave somewhere and Christ hasn't returned, now somebody's going to bury me, I suppose. My wife has asked me this question, which gets me to thinking about what could be on her mind. <laughs> Especially if she prophesies, I see you dying suddenly. I've always said, I want you to just dig a hole in the beach and just put me in the sand. But regardless of where I am or where you are, it is within the realm of possibility after we close our eyes. Now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so I can't draw this out too tightly. But to hear my name called, Raymond, and it's like this. My little brother, who's now not little, we slept in the same room from the day he was born. We shared a room in our small apartment there growing up. I had a friend, still have a friend from high school, been best friends for over 50 years. And uh, on a night, maybe before a football game, I would just casually take my brother out of his bed, carry him out to the couch, put a blanket on him and a pillow. He was little, you know, at the time, I don't know, eight years old. And then my friend could sleep there on the other side, and we could talk and talk about the game or whatever. I did this a lot, <laughs> frequently. So my brother would go to sleep in his own bed, but when he woke up, <laughs> he was in a totally different place, and that's exactly what's gonna happen with you. That night, that day, wherever it is, for whatever reason that you die, you close your eyes. When you open your eyes, you're going to be in a place that is indescribable. In this beauty, it's effulgent light. It's beyond description. Don't worry about how old you are, because the older you are, the closer you are to that moment. You know, that's the way I look at it. I'm not having fun getting older. I mean, with what's going on in my body, but all I kept thinking is, well, I'm just that much closer to St. Jesus. This is no fairy tale. This is a fact that one day be bore out and the world will see it when Christ returns. The question is asked here in the Bible, what will we do with this Jesus? I don't suppose, but I'll just say it, that you rank him with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, uh, others, philosophers. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the creator, God come in the flesh. But the point is this, Jesus said to us, you must be born again. And what does that mean? It means that we no longer live our life the way we used to live it, breaking God's laws, committing adultery. We could throw in anything really you want, alcoholism and drug addiction and stealing and all these things. Because the truth of it is, as we read in the Psalms, that we were born in sin. And Christ, as I mentioned to you Friday and I mentioned to you again, paid the penalty of every single sin you've ever committed. I've dealt with every case you can think of that deals with humanity except the serial killer, and my ministry's not over yet. I've been with murderers and everything in between, but there's no sin that God is not willing to forgive so that we can be free. And as I said to you Friday, unless that is believed 100%, you can't possibly have the joy of knowing that there's nothing being held against you by God. Nothing. Not one thing being held against you by God. So that that day, if my imagination is correct, you hear your name called. Come up here. It'll be one happy day. 
So as we pray this morning and finish this service, the question is, are you born again? Born again. Secondly, for those of you who you are, and I know most of you here, then we must press on to the end. We don't quit halfway, right to the end. Like the song says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold or anything else that you can mention. As I lead you to prayer, I just simply say, there's no way that I personally could get up each morning with the intelligence God gave me. And look at all this here, like spokes on a wagon wheel, all converging into one place, no matter what subject you pick on, and say, this is going to work out. Man will solve this. That don't go through my intellect. What goes through my intellect is my experience with Christ and watching what he's done in my own life and in my ministry in the past and saying he will do it again. So today, in response to the question in your heart, are you truly born again? And forget the label of the churches that you went to, you were born in, you were raised up in. Me, I pay no attention to labels. Well, very little anyway. It's, it's Christ. Do you have Christ in your heart? Are you born again? And if you, you say, well, I'm not sure or, or no, then today is the day to receive him in your heart. That's also in the book. It's nothing to be put off till tomorrow. It's today. It's today. You know, Philip said to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He said, come and see. So come and see. And let me say this too. Don't turn away Jesus because you met some Christians that turned you off. I've met more Christians that turned me off, and I'm a pastor. I'm intelligent enough to say that has nothing to do with Jesus. Leaders who are manipulative and con artists and whatever they may be, I mean some leaders, and Christians who don't live up to the name, that has nothing to do with me and has nothing to do with Christ. Don't let it discourage you either. Jesus is the Savior, not man. Let's pray. Father, conversion is an act of God. It's, It's your work, not mine. I simply preach, teach, pray, persuade, but you do the actual converting. I don't know today, Lord, I mean, what's in the hearts of men, only you do. But I do pray that there wouldn't be anybody in this room here today or those who have been watching by way of our live streaming or those that are listening on the radio that wouldn't themselves take that time right now and say, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and be my Savior. You will do the work. You've paid the price. You've paid the penalty. You've paid the debt. And we trust in that. You're God. For the rest, Lord, no matter what difficulties they're going through, it's physical sicknesses, economic issues, and money. It's uh, depression and anxiety, and I gave a testimony earlier about that. There is nothing that you cannot handle and nothing that you cannot overcome. Keep your people as you said you would and keep them strong in the Lord and the power of your might. Pour out your spirit today on all flesh as they believe and when they believe and cause them to have joy. Cause them not to trust in the flesh, but in your word. For you are God and you cannot lie. God, we bless you today in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, for these precious promises that we have that causes us to stand firm, stand firm in the faith. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. For you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Remind us this week, during the week, to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all the strength. And then also, God, continue to remind us to love one another. Because you said 
that all men will know you are my disciples by the love you have one to another. I put your blessing on your people, I pray today. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. amen.